We're going to do a little ad lib here for Children's Church. We're going to ask the kids to come to the front row over here. And we're going to do a five-minute children's sermon at the beginning of the adult sermon for Children's Church. So all kids can come on forward to the front row. I know I'm making you come down front. Now, the adults, if you want, you can open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Go ahead and sit on the front row. Now, you can take this crossword and you can work on it during the sermon for the adults. Yeah, let's see. That projector has cootie, Sheldon. You don't want to touch it. Yeah, all right. So, during Sunday school, the last four or five weeks, we've been going through um, the story, the Christmas story. And uh, one of the things that we learned is that God sent to us a special messenger to announce that the Messiah was coming. Now, Christmas is over, New Year's is over. Kids, what's the next holiday that you're looking forward to? Is it President's Day because you get out of school? Is it Valentine's Day because of the candy? Maybe. Yeah, all right. Well, you know what? We have all of these special holidays coming up. And uh, so President's Day, you get out of school. So you're welcome. I told you in advance that you get a day off coming up really soon. And then after that is Valentine's Day, you get all the candy. And then Easter comes. I'm going to tell you something. Easter is celebrated by the Jewish people as Passover. And they like to scare the children during the Seder meal. They set a special cup on the front porch for the prophet Elijah. And if you know your Old Testament Bible, the prophet Elijah did some very powerful miracles, and the kids are kind of scared of Elijah. And so they set the special cup out on the front porch for Elijah to drink during the Passover Seder. And at the end of the meal, they send the youngest child to go open the front door and check on the cup. And that child is shaking and fearful because what happens if he opens the door and Elijah is there drinking the cup? Ah! It's a terrifying thing. Well, Elijah, oh, Sheldon, you might not want to play with that. But Elijah was somebody who was a prophet for God, spoke for God. Now, there was a special person that was going to come. His name was John the Baptist. Let's look, look at Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and this is what it says. Okay. Actually, I'm in Malachi chapter 4, so hold on just a second, and I want to read this to you. It says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Isn't that a nice way for the Old Testament to end? With a curse? All right. But the promise is that he's going to send somebody special to announce the great and coming day of the Lord. And I will send to Elijah. Now we can go over to Luke chapter 1, verse 5. 
There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well uh, now stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. Now I'm going to jump down to verse 11. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. And the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And you shall have great joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God, And he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the job of John the Baptist was to prepare the people to accept Jesus as their Messiah. He was the Messiah's announcer. Now, Here's how this applies to all of us in the room today. At school, you can be the messenger of God. and You can announce the birth of Jesus to your classmates and tell them that he came to save sinners. And that's what we can all do. We can all be in the power and the spirit of Elijah to make a people prepared for the Lord. We can all announce that a Savior has come. So that's our message for the kids today. So thank you for your good attention. You may go back to your parents or grandparents. All right, now the rest of us, let's go ahead and take our Bibles, open up to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. The title of today's message is Unashamed, Unashamed. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12.2 says this, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Unashamed. Shame. Shame. Do we know what the word means? Most frequently, it denotes the fear that a person should have or the guilt that a person should have when we sin against God. It can also, I guess, go along with the emotion maybe when we realize that maybe we failed in a job, in a mission, Um, by either not doing it at all or by failing in the way that we tried to do it, but we just didn't do it right. Take your Bibles, go over to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34. You want to keep your ribbon in Hebrews 12 too because we're going to come back to that. But Proverbs chapter 14,
Verse 34, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation. Maybe instead of saying, make America great again, we should be saying, make America righteous again. Because I can tell you this, there's a lot of sin in our nation that we should be ashamed of. January is known as the Sanctity of Life Month. Perhaps we'll hear a sermon on the Sanctity of Life. We look back in history and we look at Nazi Germany and all of the atrocities that they committed and it's very abhorrent to us. We're much worse. We've murdered over 50 million of our own children. There should be some shame. But instead, there's boasting. We should be ashamed that we've just lost common sense. We don't know what the difference is anymore between right and wrong. As a matter of fact, we've got it backwards. We're calling evil good and good evil. The wicked want the righteous to be ashamed. Those that should be shamed live without shame or without guilt. Now, shame is a very interesting concept. It was considered appalling when people no longer had any sense of shame. Uh, Jeremiah lived in a generation in Israel when they had no shame. For all of their idolatry and all of the associated immorality that went on with that idolatry, uh, he told them that they were a shameless people. Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 15. Now, this is going to be a two-part message. Today, we want to look at the fact that Jesus Christ is unashamed to call us his brethren. To call us his children, the sons of God. After all that we've done, many times in our previous life, we've lived shameless. Perhaps we have not respected social norms, uh, nor cared about public opinion, um, and we've just done shameless things. Now, it's done, it's over with, I just mentioned it to you, not to shock you or to frustrate you, but we had a Christmas light theft out in the front of the church uh, back on the 16th where they stole our Christmas lights off the building. One of them was the, the white light that cast the nativity scene on the building. And I was just saying to myself out loud, who would steal the nativity with baby Jesus? And my wife answered, somebody who needs Jesus. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, well, that is so true. But, you know, there, there's really a sense of shamelessness in that you know that you're stealing it from a church. You know that you're stealing, like, a nativity scene. I mean, come on. Well, that's just showing us that we live in a generation where people are living without shame. 
I guess, in a certain sense, this is a, a collision of worldviews. If you have a humanistic worldview and you believe that human beings are accountable only to themselves and that each one is a god to themselves and we, we live in a generation where every man does that which is right in their own sight, then we'll live without shame. We have no moral conduct, no moral code. I mean, several years ago, do you remember the copper wire theft that was going on? Uh, there was a church in Martinez, California that had the copper tubing stolen off of the heating and air conditioning system. And uh, so there's just no shame, and it's been that way for a while now. But then this other worldview says there's a God, He's holy, there's people who are sinful, and we have to give honor to God or to reconcile with God, but these two worldviews are clashing today. Unfortunately, the shameless worldview is the one that's winning. Now, there is something that can be done for that. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. But people live without shame. You know, if we look at our first point here today, we're going to look at the shame of the cross Shame was a significant factor in the crucifixion of Jesus. The gospel record in varying degrees the different attempts of humanity to shame Jesus. With the physical, emotional, mental torture, the, all these different attempts. These techniques include spitting in the face of Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 67 Matthew chapter 27, verse 30. I mean, we know the medical danger today of even droplets of, from a sneeze or a cough, uh, but to actually walk up and spit in somebody's face. I mean, there was somebody that did that when the virus first came out and they were arrested for a felony. We just don't go around spitting on one another that's just not socially acceptable. But yet the Son of Man had spit in his face. Now the beautiful thing was the Son of Man could spit on the ground and make clay and bring healing to someone who was blind. But they struck Jesus in the face, in the head. It's not socially acceptable for us to walk around and just start slapping people in the face not the way that we greet one another. Uh, but yet they struck Jesus on the head and on the face. Matthew 26, uh, verses 67. Matthew 27, verse 30. Mark 14, 65. Um, they tried to shame Jesus by stripping him of his garments. Now, do you remember that the soldiers gambled for his garments? and that they tore it into four pieces. Why would you do that to a garment? Well, it was because of the perfume, that very expensive alabaster um, vase that was broken and that ointment that was poured on Jesus uh, by Mary uh, before his death, that she anointed him for his burial. 
that spikenard was worth a year's salary. And so that was one of their motivations to strip him, to steal from the Son of Man, to rip his clothes, but to have him hang in open humiliation. What's wrong with our culture? Why do we think it's acceptable to go around naked? But they tried to shame Jesus this way, to ridicule Jesus. He saved others. He can't save himself. If he is the Son of God, let him call the angels. They'll come and rescue him. And so they ridiculed Jesus. They insulted Jesus. The malefactor on the cross was reviling, insulting Jesus. And so those were the techniques that they tried to bring upon Jesus to shame him as our perfect, righteous substitute for for us. The Bible says, the just one died for the unjust. The holy one died for us as the sinner. Now, if we go back to our passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, We look at this phrase here, it says, despising the shame. To despise, that is, to disregard. Jesus knew the form of crucifixion that he would go through was considered shameful. All of the techniques that men tried to use to shame him were considered shameful, but Jesus despised the shame. That means he disregarded the consequences or the impact that that shame was supposed to bring upon him because he had no sin. He was righteous. He was holy. In other words, Jesus was willing to go there and to take our shame that we deserve. Not a person in this room whose conscience has not shamed them. You know why I know that? Because the scripture says so. Romans chapter 1. You have guilt in your life? That's a good sign because you can still be saved. You acknowledge that you're a sinner, you need God to deal with that guilt, then he'll take that guilt away. Now, guilt is different than shame. Guilt is actually a result of a transgression that we've actually committed. We're actually guilty of it. Can you imagine being accused of a crime that you did not commit? And you come to the end of the trial and it's made nationwide press, maybe even international news. And you did not do the crime, the jury found you not guilty. But you could still have some shame because you were accused. Well, Jesus wasn't guilty. Jesus knew that the shame of our sin was upon him 
but he disregarded it, that means that he was willing to just go there for you and me, just to bear our shame. The cross at the time brought only shame. Paul said in Philippians 2.8 that he was willing to submit himself unto death, yes, even the death of the cross. It was a public humiliation to be crucified because it meant that you had done something really bad in culture, in society. It would be like getting the electric chair today. That's what the identification that Jesus was willing to take upon himself. And so, in spite of the momentary shrinking of the idea of dying on the cross, Father, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Yet, he did his Father's will by submitting it to it. Now, notice with me here in uh, the next part of the verse, or right before that, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The Greek preposition here is anti. It means instead of. Where in Luke eleven eleven, if a child was, or a guest was to ask for bread, instead of bread, would you give them a snake? Well, the, that is the idea here. In, instead of all the glory that Christ had with the Father when, before he came to this earth, and all of that joy that he had in being worshipped by the angels, instead of that, he was willing to pick up your shame and my shame. Let your conscience just think back on your life for a moment. What have you done that your conscience will just say, yeah, I'm ashamed of that. I've gone that far. I've gone that low. I can't believe I went there. I, I just, why did I do that? Jesus bore that for you. He's willing to go there for you. He's willing to do that, to disregard the fact that it was a shameful thing. He could have said, no, I'm beyond that. I'm the Son of God. I will not go there. I will not do that. But instead, he just embraced it. That's what despising the shame means. Instead of the joy, he took the shame. And so I know that there's another way that people look at that, and they use the Greek preposition uh, for there, but that is not the preposition that is set there. So this passage thus falls within this idea of Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 8, that he came in the form of a servant. And being found in form as a servant, he humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. He despised the shame that was attendant upon a death by crucifixion, namely the fact that that kind of death was meted out upon malefactors, not upon the Son of God. Now, this idea of set, okay, the joy that was set before him, the divine a blessing of being with his Father in glory previous to coming to earth. So shame is a terrible thing to endure. 
here's what makes it worse. Right? The more, and this is the way we think as human beings. The more esteemed a person is, if their shame and ridiculed seems the harder it is for that person to take the shame. Can you think of the king of France who his nation revolted against him and executed him? He went from being most glorious to beheaded. How scorned he was as a king. And what a great shame that was brought upon him to die that kind of death. But can you think of the glory that Jesus Christ had with his father before he came into this world? Where the angels did his instant bidding? Where he was worshipped as holy? had never a break in fellowship with his heavenly Father, not even for a moment. And on the cross, he had to cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, because of our guilt, because of our shame that was thrown upon him. And so... It is collectively humanity spitting in the face of God. It can even be you individually holding the Son of God in such contempt when He's done nothing shameful. Our own rebellious hearts hate God but he was willing to go to the cross for us. Now, look with me at the verse again. Let's look here at another word, set. And is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Is set down. That's in the perfect tense. The idea being that after his work in providing salvation was finished, he sat down and he remains seated. He never has to get up again and do it over. It's a finished work. He's not only seated, but he occupies the position of preeminence. He's at the right hand of God forever. This is why we believe that once we're saved, we're secure in Christ. Because he did the work, not us. He did it one time. Only have to be saved once. And trust in Him, He saves us. And so, this is a beautiful thing. Now I want us to keep moving forward in the book of Hebrews. I want us to go over to chapter 11 and look with me at verse... um, I'm sorry, yeah, let's go to 11 and look at verse 16. And I also want us to go back and look at another verse here, uh, chapter 11 and verse 2. I want us to look at these two verses together. First of all, we'll start out in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is what? Not ashamed 
be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Now let's go back to chapter 2. And look at verse 11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is what? Not ashamed to call them brethren. Now, I don't know if Adolf Hitler had a brother or a sister, but would you want to be identified as Adolf Hitler's brother or sister? I don't know if Pol Pot had a brother or a sister, but would you want to be identified as such? I don't know if uh, some psychopath serial killer has a brother or sister, but would you want to be identified as that brother or sister? No, I think that there would be some shame, embarrassment at that, even the thought of that. You want to be kept alone, you want to keep that private, that's not knowledge for people to know in society, you just, you don't go there. Think of this for just a moment. Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us his brethren. I asked you a few minutes ago to let your conscience go back and Identify that thing that you're ashamed of, most ashamed of. My conscience went back. I know the sin of my own heart, what I've done to bring shame to myself and shame um, to just my conscience. And just say, oh, why did I do that? Why did I go there? What's that all about? Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call me his brother. He's not ashamed call you his brother or sister. He's not ashamed of you. You're thinking, no, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. Hold on. Why, why is that? Okay? So let's look at this. Hebrews 2.11. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified. So Jesus is the one who sanctifies We are the ones who are sanctified, right? To be made holy is what that means. So Jesus is the one who has made us holy. We're all of one. This is literally out of one. We have the same source. Because the Lord Jesus and the saints then have the same common source, the writer of Hebrews says, he's not ashamed to call us his brethren. Actually, this is a very interesting word. In the Greek, it's adelphos, um, means from the same womb. Have you ever heard that saying that some people throw out there in slang today? Oh, you're my brother from a different mother, right? We're we're tight, all right? We're like brothers, but we have a separate mother. Well, just set that aside. I know that didn't connect with you, but all right, we'll move on. But the idea here is this, is that we have the same heavenly 
Father. All of us in this room today, we come from different gender backgrounds, we come from different racial backgrounds, we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, we come from different educational backgrounds, but we all come from one source, God the Father. And because of that, then and even the Lord Jesus, by the way, comes from God the Father. He proceedeth forth from the Father, is what it means that God gave His only begotten Son. So the Son in His deity proceeds by eternal generation from God the Father. But in His humanity, He finds His source in God. We find our sonship in God the Father. So Jesus then will call us His brethren. So we, the Lord Jesus, um, have the same God for our Father. And so, what a beautiful humbling of Himself, of the Lord Jesus, to call us His brethren. Now, we today worship Him as exalted. He sat down at the right hand of the Father on high. But He's not ashamed to call us His brethren because God so loved the world. You're part of that world. He loves you. Yes, you've done many shameful things, but he's unashamed. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus. He's not going to be ashamed to call you his relative, his child. For both he that sanctifieth, God will make you holy. Here's the beautiful thing according to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we will confess sin, God will remove the guilt and balance out the shame because he's righteous. What a beautiful thing. And so the truth is stated in terms of our sanctification. We do not have to be ashamed to be called a son of God. Christ's sanctifying work on the cross is so perfect that God sees us as perfect as he is. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him to be sin even though he did not know sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now there's a beautiful illustration of this in the Old Testament. Do you remember the character of Joseph? Yes, no, are you with me? Shake your heads if you're still awake. Yes. All right. Um, what do you remember about him? Coat of many colors. He was his father's favorite. And his brothers despised him. They planned to murder him. Instead, 
Reuben convinced them, no, let's just throw him in a pit. We'll rip off his coat of many colors. Let's shame him. We'll rip it up. We'll kill a goat. We'll put some blood on it. And we'll take it home to dad and say, a wild beast has devoured him. Reuben's away. His brothers sell him to the Ishmaelites, which take Joseph down to Egypt. And Joseph lives a life of slavery. From the time that he's a teenage boy to the time that he's probably in his mid-30s, he's been a slave. God has exalted him. Joseph is the second in preeminence in the land of Egypt, only under the Pharaoh himself. You know the story. If you don't, go back and read it. And there's a famine that is coming. God gives Joseph the ability to interpret that dream that Pharaoh had. Joseph has a plan of action. There's going to be seven years of abundance. Let's set aside the the abundance of these seven years. Then there's going to be seven years of famine. Seven years of famine come. And here comes the ten brothers who sold him into slavery. They come marching into Egypt. Come before the face of Joseph. And they say, we would like to buy some grain. You know the story that eventually they find out that this powerful man is their brother. And Joseph has put them to the test to see if they've changed. They have. And then he weeps. And the whole house of Pharaoh hears this weeping. What's going on? Why is Joseph crying? And Joseph says, these are my brothers. He comes before Pharaoh And he says, Pharaoh, can we have some land for these, my brothers? Oh, the shame that they tried to throw upon Joseph. He disregarded it. He was willing to go there out of love for his brothers. Oh, the shame that his brothers had. They even dealt with the shame even after Joseph accepted them. When their father died, they said, now he's going to get even with us. And he says to his brothers, I know what you did. You truly meant it for evil. But God meant it for good to save many souls alive as he has done this day. I'm not in the place of God. Be at peace. You're my brothers. I love you. I'll provide for you. You see, the beauty in that is Jesus Christ. A beautiful picture. Try to strip him of his kingly robe. Sold him off as a slave and a criminal to die. Come one day for God starving in our souls. He just wants to know. Have we put our faith in him? Have we repented? 
He's not ashamed to call us his brethren. I will provide for you, Jesus Christ says. He's unashamed to call us his brethren. Now, that last verse I had you read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16. I want you to turn over there. Now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. It means that God takes a surname. So in Western culture, usually it's the bride who takes the husband's family's surname. Well, here it is God who is willing to take our surname. He's the God of Brent. If you know him as your Lord and Savior, then you can say he's the God of... And God is willing to take your name and claim you. I'm the God of. Is he your God? You see, here's a beautiful thing. He's prepared for you a city. I believe that city is finished. You can read about it at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and 22. So thus the promise that Jesus made in the Gospel of John chapter 14 is complete. There's nothing that keeps the Lord Jesus Christ from coming back to claim his church as his bride. It could be today. Wouldn't that be a great way to to start 2022? But today, God is willing to become your God. Yes, you've done many shameful things. Yes, you've even tried to shame God. But he's still willing because he went to the cross. He loves us. And he wants you to claim him as your God. He won't be ashamed to call you his son, his child. But as many as received him, to them gave he right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's his condition. You have to believe on the Lord. That means you have to turn away from yourself or whatever you think and turn to him. That's repentance, faith. So let's close the sermon by having a prayer of salvation. And then we'll look at part two of this next week. Because Jesus is unashamed of us, we should be unashamed of him. And we'll talk about that next week. Father, we come to you. We thank you that you are unashamed of us. Thank you, Father, that you are that one source that there is one God and one Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying on the cross and willing to call us your brethren, willing to call us 
uh, by your own name. And that you will identify with us and be your child. We can have you as our God. So Lord, I pray for the souls that need Jesus Christ. May they realize how much you love them. You came not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through you might be saved. That there is still time for repentance and faith in Jesus. And that today, they would put their trust in you, believe in you. Lord, that they would just pray this prayer in their heart. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. No, I cannot save myself. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for not being ashamed of me. But I do ask you to take the guilt and the shame of my sin and cleanse me and forgive me. Please become my Savior. Please become my God. Please take my name and make me your child. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray.